production. Hello, it's Sarah. I wanted to let you know about my three new meditations I have made especially for you. If you follow the podcast, you'll know that meditation has been a big part of my life for a long time, so a lot of care has been taken in making these meditations extremely powerful. I've created a 20-minute manifestation meditation to allow you to bring your dreams into reality. Then I've created two 10-minute meditations, one for the morning to help you start your day vitalized and with a clear mind, then an evening meditation to help you have a calm and restful sleep. You can find these three meditations on my website at the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com. Lily Singh is one of the world's biggest YouTube and social media stars, amassing more than 17 million subscribers and 4 billion views across her two channels. She's also the host of the late night TV show A Little Late with Lily Singh. For someone who has achieved so much, she's also not been adverse to pain in her life openly talking about coming out bisexual to her Indian parents, her struggles with depression, and living by the motto, if you create a strong base, you're ready for anything. That's what spirituality is. I think spirituality is putting in the work to connect with the universe, and I think it's putting in the work to be the best you so that you can bring your best self to the world and the universe. Spirituality means like actively putting in the effort to think about good, mm. think about connection, think about how you are having an impact on the planet and the people around you. And so I think we all owe it to ourselves and to the world to have that bit of spirituality. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. Lily Singh is the author of many New York Times best-selling books, including How to Be a Boss and her newest book, How to Be a Triangle, How I Went from Being Lost to Getting My Life into Shape. In its essence, this conversation is about determination and perseverance, using your influence for positive social change and the courage to blaze your own unique path. I really enjoyed my conversation with Lily. May our exchange leave you seeking to more courageously explore the way you think and, above all, the impact you leave on others. Lily Singh, welcome. You are a pioneer in so many fields, but let's talk about your upbringing. Let's start at the start. You were born the second daughter into a beautiful Indian family. Can you tell me a bit about your upbringing? Yeah, uh, totally. So my parents are from Punjab, India, which is the northern part of India. They immigrated to Canada in the 70s. I know this because my dad reminds me every day that he came to Canada in 1972. <laughs> um, Bless him. And yeah, I was, I was raised with my sister in Toronto, Scarborough, Toronto, Ontario, Canada, which is super diverse and I think responsible for a lot of who I am today um, because it's spunky and it's full of attitude and it's full of culture and great food. And just, I think that's why I'm such a open-minded person, I think, and I'm able to relate to a lot of different types of people. But growing up for me, you know, I was a huge tomboy. I was obsessed with wrestling. I was obsessed with The Rock. I always was that rebellious kid that could never just be the proper Indian daughter. I never wanted to wear the proper Indian things. I never wanted to do the things that were expected of me. I always wanted to just be creative and be rebellious. And it has been in my blood since I was born to just disrupt things. And so my parents had to deal with that. And um, they did they did a great job, I think. And I, I, I love them to death. And I... I pay so many dues to who I am because of them. And tell me, can you talk a little bit about the Indian culture and the place of females within that? Because you do write a bit about that in your new book, Be a Triangle. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, and I want to be clear that this is not just Indian culture. I think across many cultures around yes. the world, um, it's tough to be a girl, you know, specifically in, in South Asian culture it's not a cause for celebration. Historically, it has never been a cause of celebration if a girl was born. You know, because of whatever history has taken place, a girl's associated with dowry and expense and having a burden and having to get her married off. And that has been passed on to generations. And so when a girl 
if you, when you give birth to a girl, it's kind of like, oh man, this is going to be a lot of work and this is going to be really hard as opposed to a celebration as if a son was born because traditionally a son takes care of one's family and carries on the family name and will take care of the parents. And so it was really tough to be a girl in Indian culture. Um, there's a lot of tradition, you know, although a lot of religious scriptures will praise women culturally, there's a lot of hurdles to being a woman, you know, growing up a girl, you're told you can't do this because you're a girl. I was told I couldn't whistle. Girls, not nice for girls to whistle. It's not nice for girls to dance a certain way. It's not nice for girls to have certain jobs. So there's a lot of restrictions around what was allowed to happen on every level of your life because you were born a girl. Um, What you were allowed to have an opinion about, what you were allowed to want to do as a career, the type of person you would marry. There's just a lot of restrictions. And when I say this, people are like, oh man, really tough. And then I remind them that it's like that in America too. It's like that in other parts of the world as well. And India is no exception, obviously. How did you navigate that? With a lot of rebellion. I think, you know, one of the things I have always been really proud of myself for is asking questions. I have a really hard time accepting things for as they are. I was never that kid that was like, oh, traditionally that's how it's done. So I guess I'll do it that way. I was always the type of kid that thought, well, why has it always been done that way? And why can't I be the first to do it another way? Mm. And I think that was really tough. And and that's why I give my parents a lot of praise because although we can both discuss and say that's so admirable for a parent, that's a little stressful also, like for your kid to constantly be, pushing back against these things that you think are traditional norms, right? So I struggled with that a lot as a kid. I remember feeling like I had to conform sometimes and then I just never could. So I think from a young age, I was always just asking, why does it have to be that way? Why do I have to listen to that person? Why do I have to listen to this tradition? Um, And sometimes I didn't. And sometimes, you know, I did conform and I did. And how did your parents deal with that, with you asking a lot of questions? I mean, obviously that's an amazing thing, but I'd like to know what their answers were. I mean, I think my parents always did the best they could. For the most part, I think, and I feel comfortable saying this, I think I have taught my, my parents have taught me a lot, but I think what I've taught my parents is that things can be done a different way. Mm. So a lot of my childhood, my parents did reaffirm those traditions. Like, no, you have to do this because you know, it doesn't look nice and you have to like get a respectable job and you want to make sure that the family and community still accepts you and still likes, they were doing the best they knew of. So yes, you know, the biggest conflict I had when I was younger as a kid was I wanted to be a dancer and I wanted, and part of that was I had a dance team where we would perform at people's weddings. And my parents had a huge problem with this because they thought it's not, it doesn't look nice for an Indian girl to dance at people's weddings. Cause in their mind, that's something that is like not deserving of respect and it's not a good look and people wouldn't look, would, would look down on me. And no matter how much they told me that, I kept doing it. And it was a huge point of contention in, in our relationship until I finally showed them how cool that could be. You know, I, I had a great dance team. I had a great business that I built because of it. I competed in competitions. We won in competitions. I, showed them that this could be done in a different way than you are used to. And it could be respectable and it could be something that people are proud of. And I think that has been the theme of my life where I get the honor of teaching my parents that things could be done a different way. And to be fair, I give them credit because they have graciously learned that as well. Mm. Whether it's my career or my sexuality, my anything, they've always learned this new thing I've taught them and they've been willing to accept that and learn it just like they've taught me stuff and I've accepted it. It's really interesting you say that because I think for a lot of us, we get to a certain age, but it seems to be a lot older than what you were at the time where we realise that our parents are humans as well. Whilst when we're young, we kind of idolise them and they can do no wrong and they're teaching us. And then suddenly when we get to a certain age, we we realise, okay, they they are like us and they are there are things that we can teach them. But it's interesting to hear that you were doing that almost from such a young age and you had that kind of impact on them, I think that you knew something that maybe some of us don't realise till we're older when you were young. How did that come about? It's interesting you say that because I do think over the past couple of years is when I have actually identified that train of thought you just spoke about. Over the last couple of years, especially the last year, I have really... Um, I really appreciated my parents as human beings because you're right. For most of our upbringing, they are these inhuman 
figures that we look at that we're like, no, you hate me or you should have known or you should have done this. And we never give them the benefit of the doubt. We never give them credit for having context. We never try to understand their context. We have trauma from them or we have celebration from them and we just kind of write them off. And over the last year, I've done the work to be like, no, you know what? You have a point of view. My parents have a point of view that needs to be respected and appreciated. They have context. They're from a time and place that that is their context and that needs to all be appreciated. I don't think I would have explained it that way as a kid. I think as a kid, I used to write that off as rebellious behavior. Like my parents just don't get it and I'm going to do it my way because I'm right and they're wrong. And I think subconsciously, we taught each other things, but we would have never described it that way. I think we would have described it as a point of conflict growing yes. up. And now I can identify that, no, we have actually been able to teach each other things. Um, and now that we are really stepping into that superpower of what that is, we do it more. My mom was just here this past week. We spent so much quality time together. She visited from Toronto and just the conversations we're having are just different. They're next level. They're really uh, two people coming together, understanding each other, understanding not everything has to be right or wrong. Mm. It can be different. But as a kid, everything was definitely right or wrong. It was parents right, parents wrong, me right, me wrong. And I think I didn't realize the power of getting rid of those labels until recently. And I think it's nice to hear that you have a nice relationship with your parents because I also think when we get older, we realise that life can change in an instant. There are things in our life we should appreciate them more than maybe what we do because we're, we're not here forever. Right. I, I think it's that. And I think it's also, as I've gotten older, I less appreciate labels. Honestly, mm. I think for a lot of my upbringing, I was, you're a parent, you should serve this role. I disagree with you, so you're wrong. Uh, you don't believe in this thing, so you're not a good person. You believe in these politics, so you're this. A lot of labels, just a lot of like, this person's in this bucket because of this. And I think I have learned that you will live a more fruitful, enjoyable life if you get rid of as many labels as you can in your life, whether it's labeling a relationship, a person, whether it's mm. just getting to actually have those conversations and learn from people and knowing that like, hey, we and you can disagree, but that doesn't need to be the end of our relationship. I still think that we would be better off if we had conversations, if we had relationships, even if they weren't. And I know right now it's, it's very trendy to say, if someone's not good for you, cut them out of your life and like cut out toxic people. And sometimes that is the right answer. I don't disagree with that, but I do think that we have taken that advice and what we do instead is we don't actually ever put in the work to try to ever mend anything anymore. Mm. It's just, you're toxic for me, so now I'm cutting you out of my life. But some people are worth putting the effort in for, and it's our work to discover who those people are. And for me in my life, I have some family and I have some friends where I'm like, you know what, we've been through some rough patches, but I actually think my life is better with you in it. So I am going to do the work to mend things that have happened and and actually have conversations before I just decide that you're not right for me in my life. I think we too quickly jump to that conclusion of, I don't need you in my life. Yes. And I think everyone's got a story. And if we don't understand people for who they are and quickly judge them, then we're not understanding their background and what they've been through. Because it is so easy for us to judge, and especially in our society today. And like you said, if people don't have the same opinions as us or they don't see things through the same lens, it's easy to just disregard them. But that's not, that's not the way. And if we actually sit and take the time to listen, we can understand. And not only will that be kind to the other person, but it will enrich our lives. Because who says that we're always right? Of course we're not. No one is ever always right. Yeah. I love that you said that because something I've noticed since I've been exercising more compassion for people and trying to learn their context and trying to not judge them and trying to remove labels, something happened that was really magical that I didn't anticipate, but like I was talking in therapy and I was like, oh my God, I've had a breakthrough, which is the second I started to see other people's context and not judge them, I noticed I was more compassionate to myself mm. because I also stopped doing it to myself. I think I'm also very critical of myself where I don't consider my own context. I label myself as like, oh, you're really dumb for doing that. You're really stupid for doing that. Or how could you do that thing? Or why weren't you good? At and the second I started to give other people grace, I actually started to give myself more grace where I was like, oh, I don't need to do that to myself either. I also have a context that perhaps I wasn't giving appreciation to and perhaps I wasn't taking into account. But my context is also important, just like other people's is. That's so beautifully said, Lily. 
Let's go back to your school life because you talk about that in your book and something that really stuck out was that you say, you know, we're taught to work out mass problems, dissect Shakespearean plays, which we all have done, but we're not taught self-love or personal growth. And I think I've got two young kids and I think it's getting a bit better than when we were at school. It dumbfounds me that mental health is such a big part of for everyone, their mental health is like one of the most important things that you can get right in your life. And if it does not go right, then it's it can be quite detrimental. Why are we not putting more emphasis on that at school? That's a great question. I think think I think now things are changing. You know, I have heard of younger kids talking about how no at school we actually learn about like emotional intelligence and we learn about taking a time out to do breath work and stuff like that. So I I'm hoping that that is becoming more of a norm. Um, but I think it's because we just don't place value in it. Honestly, as yeah. a society, we measure things by numbers and by career and by these very tangible type of things. Success has always been that diploma, that grade, that job, that car, whatever it may be. And that really messed with me mentally because as someone that's so career oriented, I would feel like a day where I just spent it with really good friends and made really good memories. I would end that day thinking, oh man, that was such an unproductive day. And that's really sad for us to only place value on these tangible measures of success. Who's to say that like you having a really, really great day where you're there for a friend is not a productive day. Mm. That, that all goes down to how we measure success. So I think we aren't taught these things in school because that system has been designed with a certain definition of success, which is numbers, career, diploma, how you contribute back to society in a very tangible way. Where I think if we, need, we need to really challenge our idea and, and our definition of success to be like, no, contributing to the world could be being a good listener. Contributing to the world could be being your best self so other people can be their best self. You know, it's making sure that you are mentally healthy so that you positively impact people around you and they can be mentally healthy. Um, I think we just really need to challenge the ways we think about success culturally and across all cultures. You know, I think about my own path and I just always wanted to be in entertainment and that's, that's, that was kind of it. And I was fortunate enough to have parents that were open to that and they were happy for me to do that. But then I have seen and spoken to a lot of people who have struggled because they may have gotten the good grades and they became the lawyer, but they were so unhappy and they ended up having their own realisation and changing. So it is, it's a, it's a really interesting thing. And I hope that our schools kind of improve on this because I mean, really, they need to. With everything going on in the world at the moment and with COVID, hardly over, but we've just kind of come through and everything else in the world, we need to have that strong mental foundation. And I wonder for you, you're obviously quite a spiritual person and you speak about that in Be a Triangle. How did that come into your life? Writing this book really helped me get to the place I am right now. I keep saying that this book I wrote, Be a Triangle, is the most impactful thing I have ever done for myself by far. Um, so I remember even writing it thinking, even if no one reads this book, it's a win because it has changed me in my life. And so it really means a lot to me. But I think, you know, I did grow up with religion. And as I grew older and I got into university and I started to definitely get into this industry, I kind of learned, and I'm not taking anything away from religion or religious people. I think people believing in something is great. And I think we should encourage everyone to believe in something bigger than themselves, whether that's religious or religion or spirituality. For me, I think all religions are kind of saying the same thing, which is like, believe in something bigger than yourself. Mm. Believe in something that is above you and show gratitude and be kind. I think that's the root of all religions is be kind, be a good person, try to be good, try to do good. Um, I like spirituality because it doesn't get lost in the weeds of ritual or certain uh, practices that are really individual. I mean, that's me as a person. If that works for you, great. For me, what I really like is just connection. I really like connecting with people and with source. And so I do believe in God. I don't practice any religion myself, but I do really believe in putting in the work to be good. 
And I think that's what spirituality is. I think spirituality is putting in the work to connect with the universe. And I think it's putting in the work to be the best you so that you can bring your best self to the world and the universe. Um, and that requires work. That's why I call it spirituality because it's not the same as just existing. I used to think for a long time, just, I did a good thing for someone today. So I'm spiritual. No, spirituality means like actively putting in the effort to think about good, mm. think about connection, think about how you are having an impact on the the planet and the people around you. And so I think we all, we all owe it to ourselves and to the world to have that bit of spirituality. Can you tell us a bit about your spiritual practices? Yeah. Um, I try, so I have more than anything, my spiritual practices are founded in giving myself permission to be human. And that was important for me because I used to be the person where I was like, oh, you didn't meditate today. You're a bad spiritual person and you haven't done this. And I get in this type of like very perfectionist mindset, which I don't, I don't think is beneficial for everyone. So my spiritual practices are I meditate as often as I can, but if I miss periods of time or days, I don't beat myself up. I am a human first and foremost. Um, but my spiritual connection, uh, practices are deeply what I talk about in the book. It is, strengthening my relationship to myself. What that means is being so in tune with myself, knowing my strengths and weaknesses, knowing how I can be a light in this world, how I uniquely can be a light in this world, which may not be the same way you can be a light in this world, but it's how I know I can be. It is removing myself from, or is trying to work through things that I know are not being a light in this world. Like Lily, you have the tendency to do this. I'm not mad at you about this. I'm not beating you up for this, but perhaps we can work on this so that we can be a brighter light in this world. It is understanding that I am everyone and everyone is me. And what I say by that is that we are all connected and it goes back to context. I told myself in my meditation, Lily, you might meet someone today that you really don't get along with, but they are you and you are them and you are just in different contexts. So get off your high horse and stop thinking you're better than people and understand we're all connected. Um, my spirituality also really has to do with being creative. I think creativeness and spirituality go hand in hand. And I think a lot of times when we think we can't be good, really what we're saying is that we have not figured out a creative way for us to do good, but there is always a, a way to do good. We just have to be creative and figuring it out. Um, and the last thing I'll say is I'm a really big business person. And a lot of times when I say this, people roll their eyes because they're like, business is supposed <laughs> to be cutthroat. Business is supposed to be the opposite of spirituality. I really believe in the intersection of business and spirituality. And I think every business person should be spiritual because there will be better business people. But I think understanding that you can be successful in business but also be mentally healthy and be a good person is something that's not talked about enough, but I do think we should all strive to do that. I love that you said that because there was a lot of points in your book where I thought, oh my God, she's like mirroring my life <laughs> because I'm also a deeply spiritual person, but I also strive and I also hustle and I've gotten to where I am because I've worked a lot for it. And I won't say it's hard work because I don't feel like this work has been hard, but I have put out to be able to receive, which I think is a big part of manifestation as well. I always say to people, if you're just praying and hoping for the best, but not doing anything, that it's very rare that that's going to come to you. But if you're showing the universe that you actually want it by doing the work, you will start reaping the rewards of that. If you're being a good person and doing all the other things that you just spoke about. But I did once have someone say to me, but aren't you spiritual? Why do you hustle so much? And I thought to myself, why do they have to be separate? You, just because you're spiritual doesn't mean you have to wear a robe and go and meditate on a rock somewhere. You live in existence of this life and you believe that there is a higher good and you are conscious of everything you do because you know by being conscious and being a good person that you're going to make other people around you feel good. You're going to get have a good internal compass and you're going to be able to give as much as you can to the others in this world and help them on their journey. And I wonder for you, how have you found that hustling, which I know that you've done and had that whilst leading a spiritual and happy existence in this world? That's a great question. And I think this also goes back to our conversation about labels. I think as humans, especially with social media and the internet, we're very used to extremes. Things are either this or they're that. That's how we've made the world now. It's this or it's that. It's 
if you're spiritual, people think, oh, you got to meditate every day. You got to look like this. You got to live like this. You got to have this belief system. Or if you're not that, then you're the workaholic and then you never have time to meditate. And then you're just an aggressive business person. No, progress is in the middle. You know, it's, it doesn't have to be extremes all the time. You, I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive. I think every single person, going back to your question about why don't we teach this in schools, I think if we actually wanted really successful workers and teachers and lawyers and people, everyone should be spiritual. Everyone would benefit from that. Um, for me, how I have navigated that is quite simple, which is hustling for me is accomplishing everything on my vision board. It is doing those meetings. It is doing those projects. It is making money. It is fulfilling all of those dreams I have had. The spirituality kicks in when I then ask myself, now what does all of that mean? So it's fine to hustle. I am a spiritual person that will openly say, no, I want to make money. I want to have a nice car. That thing, I really want that. And it doesn't make me less spiritual because of what that thing means to me. That thing is not now going to define me. That thing is not worth more than people to me. It's not worth more than memories to me. It is a nice thing I wanted. And as a human being, I accept that I can have nice things I want. It's not now going to be my definition. I'm not now the person who has money or the person with a nice car. No, I am still more than that. It's It's how you define those things where I think the spirituality kicks in. That's so interesting. Lily, 2010, you started making YouTube videos and I actually remember, I still don't know so much about YouTube. Like I I have a YouTube channel, but I don't know that much about it. But I remember your name because you were one of the first people to start doing these YouTube videos. Mm -hmm. That just shows how creative you actually are, that that was the first thing and it absolutely blew up for you. Yeah, I, that's, that's a wild roller coaster. Honestly, in 2010, when I started making YouTube videos, I did not think at all it would snowball into the career I had right now. Um, me being one of the first, especially South Asian women on YouTube doing what I did set off is like the very first first in my life. I think in my life, I've been the first at a lot of things. And I don't say that to gloat. I actually think being the first is awesome and also so tragic and hard. I think there's two ends of that coin. I always tell people being the first at several things has been the honor of my life and also the bane of my existence at the same time. And YouTube was the first time I was the first in that way. So it was definitely an experience I learned a lot from. Um, It was definitely where I found a lot of my creative footing. It is definitely where I, I, I define that time best as me rolling with the punches. In school, I did not do anything related to creation. I did not edit. I did not learn how to, I learned, I taught myself how to edit, how to write, how to shoot, how to do comedy. I have a degree in psychology. My journey on YouTube was definitely my most, probably what has defined me the most. Um, but it was such a wild roller coaster that I was not at all prepared for. <laughs> and talk about the spreadsheets. Cause I know that you were quite meticulous with all that kind of stuff. You had your spreadsheets, you, you knew what was going on. I was I'm the type of person where if I like something, I don't just like it. I become obsessed with it. And I can openly admit that. That is just my personality type. And YouTube was no exception. I was obsessed with my growth on YouTube. I was obsessed with being successful on YouTube. And so my entire day was dedicated to growing and excelling and being good at this thing and learning about this thing. So I would have spreadsheets where although YouTube had analytics at that time, they weren't that extensive. They weren't as extensive as they are now. So I would have a spreadsheet where every day I would track my followers and my views and how, how my stats were changing. And at the time, I will say that was necessary to get to where I am today. Like that obsession was necessary. In hindsight, of course, you could look back at that and be like, that's pretty unhealthy. I, I'm going to be really honest and tell you that a lot of the unhealthy things I did in terms of like how much I worked and how many hours I worked, I'm going to be honest and say, I don't regret them. I think to get certain levels of success, you have to be obsessed, but I hope for everyone that they can get to a place in their life where they can give themselves permission to let go of that. And that's where I am. So I I sit here today, not to lie to people and say, Hey, you know what? Work-life balance is really important. And if you're starting a career, you should have work-life balance. I know that's what people want me to say. I didn't have it. And I can't sit here and truthfully tell you that if I did have it, I would be where I am. I can't, I can't truthfully say that. But what I can say is that 
when you pay your dues and you work really, really hard, the goal should be to get to a place where you're like, and now I give myself permission to enjoy the ride. I think the issue is that we never give ourselves that permission mm. is that we stay on that chase for our whole life and we stay on that hustle for our whole life and we get so caught up in the climb that we forget why we started climbing in the first place. Do you and, remember the point where you got to that, where you gave yourself the permission? Yes, it's called Be a Triangle by Lily Singh. <laughs> and it is through writing this book that I've truly given myself that permission because I never sat down to actually do the reflection to think, well, when are you going to reach that place? Most of us don't even have an idea of what that place looks like. We just know that we know it's some arbitrary place that we're going to get to. And when we get there, then we can stop working, but we've never defined it. So we just keep working, 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 working. We keep coming up with excuses and reasons as to why we're not at that place. It was through writing this book where I thought, what else more do you want to do? Sure. I could say, well, I haven't been in a movie with the rock yet, so I haven't made it. If I do that, then it's going to become, well, you haven't been in two movies with The Rock yet. Well, you haven't won an Oscar with The Rock. It'll keep going until we actually are like, you know what? I think all of the things little Lily wanted to do, you've done. And I think now you owe it to yourself. You can still work really hard, but now just have fun and enjoy. So now when I do projects, I have given myself permission to be like, well, I have fun and will I enjoy this? And if I don't, I'm not going to do it. Because I've spent so much of my life doing all of that stuff and I want to actually enjoy it now. And I think we all need to get to that place where we give ourselves permission to do that. What do you do now for fun? Ooh, I love plants. I'm a crazy plant lady. I love to tend to plants. That's a boring answer, but it's true. Um, I I will forever love movies. I love going to, nothing will replace going to a theater and watching a movie with a bucket of popcorn for me. That is my ultimate heaven. Um, I love playing Fortnite. Judge me. I love Fortnite. I love playing video games. Um, And honestly, for me, fun as I've gotten older is just quality time with my friends and family. I love having conversations. I love getting to know people. I love eating food with them. And I love just, it's kind of, it's kind of sounds cliche, but it's like the simple things. Mm. I really enjoy that. You have written about it being harder to make friends as, as you get older. Why Mm. do you think that is? Well, I think there's the obvious answer of there's kind of less opportunity to meet people when you're older. You know, you're not going to school, especially now with COVID, we're not even going to work sometimes. Everything, we're just so isolated. So I think the opportunity to make friends is less as you get older. But I also think that, I'll speak from my experience, I kind of got set in this way of like, oh man, I have my childhood friends that knew me from before And so I can only be friends with people like that have known me and have grown up with me. But I think that I have embraced stages of life now that I can make new friends who didn't know me from when I was a kid, who didn't know me from before I was just literally not, you know, in the public eye. I think I, going back to labels, I've gotten rid of this label of what it means to be a friend of mine. And I had this list of expectations and list of criteria that people had to meet to be my friend. But now I just kind of chilled out a little bit and been like, Hey, you haven't known me for that long, but I really vibe with you. I really think we have some great connection, great similarities, and we can be friends. And I think what it is, is just to be really blunt, is it takes more effort as an adult. Mm. You have a lot of responsibilities. You have a lot of other ways you could spend your time. And you have a lot more excuses that you think are valid to not spend time with people. And over the past couple months, I have been prioritizing friendships and I have made a lot of really, really great friends as a result. So I think it just takes more work as you get older. You don't have recess forced on you anymore. And I think the nice thing is when you're older compared to when you're at school, when you're at school, you're just put with people who are in your class and some of them end up being lifelong friends and you absolutely love them. Or you get to a stage where you're like, yeah, actually really don't have that much in common with these people and I was just put in a class with them for God knows how many years. And when you're older, you actually pick the people that you have things in common with and then you forge these these friendships that can sometimes last a season or a lifetime, but all have such an impact on you. And I think that is such a beautiful thing. And and we can be discerning about who our friends are. We don't need to have a million friends. If you've got a couple of close friends, I mean, what more does, does one need? And especially when you're such a busy person, it's hard to fit everything in. Yeah. And I think especially for me personally, as I've grown older, I think we get encouraged to become more closed off. You know, we are told that that is safer 
that is wiser. Uh, we get more guarded because we believe that that's what life requires of us as we get older. But I encourage us to challenge that a little bit. I think remembering and tapping into that openness we had as kids is beneficial for adults to sometimes let that guard down. And I don't know, I guess I'm still thinking about that and, and how I, cause it's scary. You know, as we get older, we we've, we've been hurt more than we've been hurt because we've had more years to be hurt. We've had more years to become jaded. And I think we use that as armor and it does definitely protect us, but also probably prevents a lot of great things from happening as well. So I think really navigating when to let that guard be permeable and when to let things go through is important. I'd like to know, Lily, obviously social media and that online world has played a huge part in in your career and your growth and has done such amazing things for you. But also, as we see, it can be detrimental in a lot of ways. How do you navigate the light and the darkness of social media? That's a great question. That has been one of the biggest challenges of my life because I my career is based off social media. So I obviously think it has greatness to it. It can give you a career, it can allow you to create it, makes the world a little smaller, makes you able to connect with people. We probably are now more knowledgeable about things and people around the world than we've ever been because we can actually be connected. So I think social media is great. Having said that, I also feel responsibility to say it's also horrible. Social media is also very, very horrible. It is a false reality. It is not the real world. It is a tool that we should use. It is not a tool that should use us. That is where the, where things become problematic is we start to believe social media is real life. We start to believe that we know complete strangers and we know everything about them. And we know them better than they know themselves. And we start to easily label people in situations. How I have now navigated my relationship with social media is just that. It is a tool that adds to life. It is not a replacement for life. It is a tool that adds to interaction. It does not replace interaction. Um, it is another layer you can add on people. It doesn't replace getting to know people, you know? And I learned this during when, you know, I live in LA and when we're at the height of protests during COVID, I remember just like a lot of people being so overwhelmed by social media and just how much conflict and how much disagreement there was. And I remember thinking, oh my God, the world is hopeless. Like humanity is hopeless. And then I deleted social media and I went to a protest in real life and it was actually beautiful. It was people mm. getting along. It was people having conversations, standing together. And I was like, oh, right. Social media is not real life. Like we are made to believe that this is how people actually interact, but it's not. And so now how I view social media is it's a tool for my job and for self-expression and for art, but it is not who I am. My profile is not who I am. If you follow me on Instagram, I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but that doesn't mean that you know who I am as a person. You know one facet of who I am, but you don't get to tell me who I am as a person because you follow me online. And I don't get to tell you who you are as a person because I read your post and I disagreed with it. It is just a layer and a tool we should use. And I use it for my art and I use it for my job. But those numbers are not me. My profile is not me. And I don't think any of us would make the mistake that it's real life. And also, let me say that that's okay. That doesn't mean that we have to now go through social media and be like, fake, fake, fake. No, we can just accept that this is a layer of someone. It, does, it doesn't mean it's a bad thing either, you know? That's really beautifully said. And I think something that it challenges all of us, and I wonder for you, especially in the early days of social media when you were starting out, how did you navigate any negative comments? Or even now, like with your TV show and things like that, and having just a, a presence that is one that's in the, in the public eye, how do you navigate anything that comes through that isn't glowing? So I'd be lying. And I think anyone who says they're not affected by negative comments is lying. I, I do think no matter how long you've been doing this, no matter how thick your skin is, it's still the right comment will still get to you. For me, I realize that the comments that hurt me the most are not ones that are like, you're not funny, you're ugly, whatever. It's the ones where people try to tell me who I am. I think my previous answer will make a lot of sense now when I give you this context, but that always bothered me. Being misunderstood always bothered me, especially because I know in my heart 
I am trying my best. I'm trying to be the best person I can be. And then for someone to never have met me, but them trying to tell me who I am, that always really got to me. That frustration, that frustration and just that feeling of an injustice always got to me. And how I combat that now is just really working to have a strong sense of self because I've learned that, and I'm not saying I'm perfect at it. Don't get me wrong. Still a comment might throw me off and might really, really hurt me. But I think how I navigate that is repeating to myself who I am. The center of my vision board says, control your narrative, know who you are. You know, people's comments bother you because you're inviting, you're giving them permission to tell you who they are. But I am actively working to take that permission away to be like, hey, I know you're saying this, but I don't add value to what you're saying because you don't get to tell me who I am. You don't get to tell me who I am, me. Unless you have been in my life and unless you know me personally, you do not get to have an opinion. It's as simple as that. Um, it's an easier said than done thing, but having a stronger sense of self and really doing the work to like, sometimes I'll even write down who I am and mm. what my values are, what my beliefs are, because that gives me a kind of an armor against you telling me what my beliefs are. Because you don't get to, I get to do that, not you. I think living an authentic life is one of the key forms of where you find joy and happiness. And so unbelievably important. Lily, you talked before about going to therapy and I think that's such a wonderful thing. And I wonder for you, when in your life did you start going and how has it helped you on your path? I started consistently going to therapy um, probably like a year ago. Before that, I would sporadically try here and there. I wasn't too consistent, but I think for like about a year, I've been consistent. Um, It's impacted my life in a very, very simple way, actually. Of course, I could give you examples of breakthroughs I've had or when my therapist has really helped me learn something or dissect trauma. But more than any of that, I think why therapy is beneficial and can be beneficial for everyone universally in this one way is you are dedicated time, you are dedicating time and energy towards yourself. That's what I say about meditation as well. People always tell me like, I'm doing it wrong. I don't know how to shut down my thoughts. I don't know how to focus on something. I don't know how to meditate. And I'm like, meditation and therapy in all forms of self-love and and focusing on self-care is one thing and one thing only. You are putting the time and energy into yourself. That's it. As long as you did that, you did it right. As long as you said, yo, for 20 minutes, I'm going to focus on loving myself and listening to myself. Even if I get distracted, I'm just going to sit with myself or I'm going to place love and importance on myself. You've done it right. That is the only thing. So with therapy, that's all it is. It's saying, hey, once a week for an hour, Even if I have no breakthroughs, even if I just ramble to my therapist, even if I cry for an hour, at least I can say, hey, for an hour today, I was the most important thing. And I and I loved myself and put importance on myself. And that is, I think, a win. Absolutely. What led you there just over a year ago to go more consistently? I think it was the the realization that it doesn't have to be broken for you to practice self-care. I think people view therapy as I'm fighting with my spouse. I'm going through a really hard time. I need a therapist to help me work through it. That's fine. Great. But I always say therapy and meditation, they can also be the vitamin C to our mental health. It can be the, Hey, I just want to keep improving myself. It was the realization that why do I keep waiting to be to a really low point before I try to be happy. Why can't I just actually strengthen my happiness and strengthen my mental health? Um, and until I really started to prioritize, prioritize myself, I didn't go to therapy consistently. But the second I, again, started writing this book and I decided to prioritize myself, I started going to therapy consistently. And it's not because I'm falling apart every week. Some weeks I am, but it's because I care about myself and I love myself. That's beautiful. You talk in Be a Triangle about when you came out to your mother and father as being bisexual and it's really vulnerable and open and Be a Triangle in general is such a beautiful book and you've really worn your heart and your sleeve and I can understand after reading it why it was so cathartic for you because it's beautiful and it I have no doubt that it will help so many people. But what was interesting in that story was you talk about the way that you first reacted once you told them the information. And then after going to therapy, when you started to unpack it, it's this interesting thing about how we see something through a certain lens. But then when we have time to dissect it or think about it, what we thought was true may not be true. And I'll get you to explain how that kind of came about. 
Right, exactly. So I talk about in the book that when I first came out to my parents, the mental image I took of that moment was they didn't say exactly what I wanted them to say. They were very supportive in hindsight, but they didn't say the exact words. They didn't do the exact things I imagined them to do. And that was because I gave them no chance to process. I expected instant accommodation. And again, I know in today's day and age, it's very trendy to say, when you come out to someone, if they don't accept you right away, F them, forget them, they're in the wrong. But in the real world, people need time to process and people will not be perfect and they will not say all the right things. And that doesn't mean they don't accept you and it doesn't mean that they hate you and it doesn't mean they don't support gay rights. It means that they're a human being that is reacting in a way that, is human, probably, you know what I mean? And that's not synonymous with not being supportive. That's someone being a human being. And I think the reason time heals things is because what time allows you to do is it allows you to reflect on a situation without viewing it solely via via an emotional lens. You know, when we first are in an experience, we cannot separate our emotions from that experience. We, all of the facts of that situation are through an emotional lens. It's through your anger, it's through your, it's through your happiness, it's through your sadness. And that's what I did. I was scared and I was really, really vulnerable, um, really insecure. And I was probably a little angry. So everything they said was through that lens of like hearing it through anger and hearing it through fear. And then when I relived that experience a year later without those imminent emotions there, I was able to see the words for what they were is that, no, my parents are actually really, really supportive. But the truth is, Lily, that you were really, really scared and you were really, really insecure. And maybe you were a little mad at yourself for not having figured this out sooner or because this was going to make your life harder. And maybe that's why everything that was said to you was registered in this negative way when in fact it wasn't like that. And so I encourage everyone to allow yourself permission to reflect on things without emotions are great, but they also are, they cloud our judgment. They cloud reality. And we have to be real about that. They do. So that's why time is so important. It allows you to reflect when people can never figure out why does time heal? It heals because it allows you to view a scenario without that immediate emotional response that you had in the moment. When, you talk about obviously being fearful when you were talking to your parents about coming out. And I'm sure there's been many moments in your life where fear has come in because it's just a, it's a human emotion that happens to all of us. How do you best navigate fear? For a long time, I treated fear like, oh, I don't even know if weakness is the right word, but something that was not desirable. Anytime I've ever been feared growing up in my life, I would try to talk myself out of that fear. You know, I would try to say, stop being like this. This is not productive. I've since learned that fear actually is a great indicator that you care about something. So anytime I go on stage, I've probably been on stage thousands of times by now in my life. But every time I go on stage, I'm still scared and I'm still nervous. And people always ask, why are you still? It's because I care. I care about the outcome. I care about what I'm doing. And naturally, that means I'm scared and I'm nervous. And So fear can actually be quite a beautiful thing Mm. when you think about it through that lens. I also think that sometimes we should sit in fear. You know, sure, sometimes you're going into a job interview, you need to psych yourself out of it, you need to perform well, sure. But I also think there's a lot of opportunity in fear. I think fear teaches us about ourselves and it, it teaches us about just the duality of life. To, to be scared really, really makes the moments where you feel safe, feel safe, right? Or else we would never feel safe if we never knew what fear felt like. So I really think we should sit in fear sometimes. I think all emotions serve a purpose. I think the issue becomes when they take control of us and when we can't get out of a certain emotion, but I think all emotions serve a purpose. Mm. And I love what you say about duality of life. I was talking about that with someone the other day and something had happened and I was like, oh, why do we need to have this kind of negativity and sadness in our life? And they were like, but Sarah, the happy wouldn't be as happy if you didn't have the sad. And that is the dichotomy of life is the light and the shade. And it's Mm -hmm. moving through that. And once we do, we appreciate the brightness and the stars and and it is, I mean, that's life. It's inevitable. It's learning. It's, it's why we're here. 
So I think that is a really important thing for people to know. There's this really beautiful passage I'd like to read out. It's, it's right at the end of your book. Mm-hmm. I'm sure our lives will continue to get more complex. Noise will find new ways to distract us. Heartaches and stresses will present themselves time and time again. These things will never stop. And that is why we must always return to what we know to be true, our relationship with ourselves and our relationship with the universe. And it goes back to every, everything that we've been talking about. And I wonder, in times of darkness for you, Lily, how do you really centre yourself and have that alignment with that world that we can't see? The reason I don't want to ever write another book, let me start this question and answer by this. People <laughs> yeah. ask me if I'm going to write another book. <laughs> I never want to, and I hope I never have to, because I wrote Be a Triangle thinking that this could be the blueprint for my spirituality for the rest of my life. And the reason that I wrote that specific passage is because I would be naive to think that if I set out specific rules for myself on how to be happy and how to be spiritual and how to feel fulfilled, life is too, the universe is too creative. It would throw something new my way that would completely uproot all of the things I, every stage of my life have been like, now I figured it out. And then life goes, surprise, here's something you, you never thought you would have to deal with. And I'm like, ah, and I go spiraling again. I wrote this book with the intent of coming up with a framework that is indestructible. Because I know no matter what is happening in my life, no matter what job I have, no matter what relationship I have or have not, no matter what happens, the things that will still be true are a relationship to myself and a relationship to the universe. I can still implement design in my life and I can still understand distraction. All That's how I wrote this book, that it is not job dependent. It is not age dependent. It is not health dependent. It is these things will always be true from now until the day I die. And so that is what I hold on to. That's what I mean by coming home to these set of ideas. Um, so that, that's, that I, I hold that close and I hold that and that makes me feel at peace knowing that this work I have done will be relevant always. It will mm. never become irrelevant. I think that's what's so true about these teachings. They are, they're always, doesn't matter. You can read books from Mahatma Gandhi to Deepak. They have that same, the same synergy between them because they're not new and they, they're, they're all these beautiful truths that we can always turn back to in, in times of darkness. And I wonder, Lily, what is the best advice that you have ever been given? Ooh, that's a really good question. It's my favourite quote. It's actually from my big fat Greek wedding. Um, <laughs> yeah, but the quote always stuck with me when I heard it, which was, don't let your past define you. Let it be part of who you become. That has really been impactful for me because I notice that when someone asks me about myself, like, tell me about yourself. I think a lot of us respond with either our job or we respond with our trauma. I do this for work and growing up, I had a really tough childhood because of this. We usually define ourselves through our pain. I, that's just what we do because it's what we know, you know? We so rarely define ourselves by our potential. When someone says, like, tell me about yourself, we rarely say, well, I'm someone that's going to do this and I'm going to do this and I have this great idea and this is how I'm going to change the world. It's because we are so tied to our past. It's because what we know and the future is so uncertain. But I think that quote of don't let it define you, but let it be part of the path of what the greatness you will do in the world has been really helpful to me because it has allowed me to define myself by my mm. potential and not just by my trauma. And that's been really impactful. What's your greatest hope for society today? My greatest hope for society today is that I hope we all recognize the importance of doing the work to live a fulfilling, happy life. I think this world would be a much better place if everyone had therapy, if, every, if, if it was available to everyone, if everyone knew the importance, if everyone believed in it, if everyone meditated, if everyone was like, for 10 minutes a day, I'm going to work on myself because I know if I work on myself, the world will be a better place because the world will be filled of people who know it's important to work on yourself. Because mm. I do think a lot of problems in the world, yes, you could say they're because of money and because of power, but they're because of hurt people. They're because of hurting people, people that, define themselves because of their power or define themselves because of their money or feel the need to have to control other people. It all comes from a hurt place. And I think if we all just, I mean, it sounds ideal, but if we all just 
put a little bit more effort into us being the best versions of ourselves and finding happiness and, and strengthening the relationship with ourselves in the universe, I do think the world would be a better place. What is the lesson that has taken you the longest to learn? Um, I think I'm still learning it, but I think it's becoming more second nature to me is that success really is the journey. You know, it really is not this destination that we're trying to get to. It is really not. And I, and I don't even say that to be cliche. I say that because if you think that success is a place you have to get to ask yourself right now, have you ever defined that place? No, it is usually just an arbitrary place. We have never actually thought about what it looks like, what it smells like, what it sounds like, what it feels like. We just know it's an arbitrary place. That's because we're so used to making an excuse as to why that place cannot be right now. That is honestly what just what the truth is. Um, success really is the journey. Like enjoy, enjoy the journey. I think I'm still actively learning that, but that is something that I'm getting better at. I mean, being a successful person, but someone, as we spoke about, who is striving and wanting more in life, which is a good thing. How have you found happiness in the present moment? A lot of it has come down to not taking everything so seriously. Mm. Um, that is also in the center of my vision board that don't take everything so seriously. Another one of my favorite quotes is, life is a tragedy for those who feel and a comedy for those who think, mm. which is some things are a big deal, but not everything is. And I think I have found happiness in the journey just by knowing that, hey, not everything is the end of the world. Not everything has to be such a big deal. Not everything has to be taken so seriously. Like this thing that you're crying about, cry, be sad, but then also don't forget to be like, oh my God, this is, and laugh at yourself, you know, like laugh at yourself, laugh at just the absurdity of life and it'll be so much more enjoyable. You can't laugh at everything, but there's a lot you can laugh at that you probably don't. Absolutely. You can have two emotions. You can be sad and be happy at the same time. Yes, They're absolutely. not mutually exclusive. So They're complex human beings. You can be multiple things at one time. You can feel for other people in the world who are suffering. And I think that's another thing we struggle with a lot right now is we all know the world is suffering in so many ways. And so we feel like we cannot be happy because we have to suffer with them and we want to give back to them. I believe that we can have empathy for others and we can stand up for them and we can donate money and we can fight for them. But at the same time, I think we owe it to ourselves to still live a life that is fulfilling and happy because what would we gain from always suffering? Mm. I think we could also stand up for people better if we were fulfilled. So I do think there has to be duality or else humanity would be very sad all yes. the time. Do you have a a favorite prayer or saying? It's not necessarily a saying. And like I just finished saying, I'm not a very religious person, but I was born and raised in a Sikh family. And there are a lot of things about the Sikh faith that I really, really like. Uh, there's a lot of things from a lot of religions that I really, really like. Um, one thing in particular about the Sikh faith is oneness, which I think is a thread in many religions. It's a thread in a lot of religions. It's about oneness. It's just about humanity as one, God as one, um, a collective. And I think that idea in religion is one I can really get behind. And I think it's really sad that, although I believe that's at the heart of most religions, that people use religion as a vehicle to divide when I think actually the purpose mm -hmm. is oneness. What is a life of greatness to you? A life of greatness is one where I get to take my brain babies and bring them into existence, whether that's through my art, my profession, or through my personal life, how I think love should look, how I think a career should look, how I think relationships should look, how I think prayer and meditations would look. For me, a life of great greatness is a life where I get to create. I get to create um, a day that fulfills me. I get to create a life that fulfills me, and I get to create relationships that fulfill me. Lily Singh, thank you for all the work that you've done in all your many platforms and especially for opening your heart up and writing Be A Triangle because as I mentioned, putting those words on paper and opening yourself up has changed the life of so many people and will change the lives of everyone that reads it. So thank you very much and thank you for the chat today. Thank yes, thank you for such a great conversation. I appreciate you. 
I hope you enjoyed my episode with Lily Singh. Next week on A Life of Greatness, we have one of Australia's biggest musicians. He has toured with both Taylor Swift and Pink. His hit Riptide has had over 1 billion streams. Vance Joy joins me for one of his only in-depth interviews about life, love and following your dreams. Make sure you subscribe to A Life of Greatness on your favourite podcast app so you don't miss it. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search A Life of Greatness podcast. Download the new listener app now and listen for free.